If you know me, you know that I don't like for anybody to touch my drink, my straw. I can't drink after anybody. I got my water, bring up here every week. Yesterday, I backed my truck in over here to the sea cans to help put up stuff for the yard sale. And I left my water in the truck, not realizing I left my water in the truck. And I come into church, and there was a bed in here, and I'm thinking, I'm going to put that bed out there in the sea can. That way it's going to be put away rather than left out in the hallway. And I forget where I left my water. I walk in, I see a water sitting on there where that, right there in front of Levi. There's a water sitting there, and I'm thinking, I must have brought my water in. So I reached for the water, undid the top of it, took a couple of drinks out of it. And I just assumed that was my water. Till I got back out to the truck later and see my water in the truck. So I ain't done my story. So I back out the truck and I see Angie and I told Angie, I said, Angie, I can't believe what just happened. I just drank somebody's water. And I can't stand that. I, I don't like to drink after anybody. I mean, you go to a restaurant with me and you touch my straw. My straw is garbage after that. I throw it away and get me a new straw. When a waitress comes by and wants to refill my drink, I take my straw out of the cup before she leaves. I don't want her touching my straw. I drink after somebody. So I, I told Angie, if I'm not here tomorrow, you know why. So all I'm telling you is this. This is day one. If something happens to me tomorrow, now you know the rest of the story. All right? So if something happens this week, you know why Kurt is not here. All right? Sheila, you have something to add? Oh, come on. That was, that was not your water. No, I don't think that was your water. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you. It has nothing to do with where we're about to go. Anyway. Yeah, she got to hear it yesterday. I got to experience it. You just got to hear it. All right, but we do have a couple of scenarios I want to share with you this morning before we get to the reading of the word. We'll be in Leviticus chapter 18 in just a moment. But a couple of scenarios to kind of set things where we're going today. Number one is this. Here's the first scenario. A teenage girl comes home from school one day and shares with her dad that her best friend is attracted to her. Her dad has a sickening feeling in his heart and desperately hopes his daughter does not share the same attraction. So he frightfully asks his daughter, well, what did you tell her? When she said that she was attracted to you, what did you tell her? And her answer gives him some sort of relief. Because she answers and said, well, I told her I'm not attracted to her, but I do like her as a friend. But dad, she just kept insisting that we could be much more than that. That we could be really, really, really good friends. And the father says, once again, with fear surfacing, I mean, all he can mutter is, mm, yeah, mm-hmm. And he kind of pauses. Which prompts then the daughter to look at the father again with the dad hesitating and said, Dad, well, if I did begin to have feelings for her, would that be okay? I mean, doesn't the law now give us permission to be together? We could be happily together. And Dad, as I really begin to think about it, I really want your advice because I think I might start liking her for more than just a friend. That's our first scenario. 
Scenario number two, your boss has called you to his office for a discussion of your job performance. It's time for your annual evaluation. Now, you're not worried about it because you know that you've been putting in extra hours and have had a lot of success on the recent project renovation. So you joyfully go to his office knowing that you've done your very best. And as you go into your boss's office, everything starts out exactly as you expected. He tells you you've been proven to be a winner. You sacrifice for the company, showing some real initiative and capable of overcoming some great complicated tasks that he has given you. And your recent project renovation has come way under budget. He tells you, good job. And naturally, you start feeling really positive about yourself and where the conversation is headed. You just know that he is going to recommend you for the next promotion that he has been offering to the firm for quite some time. And then he just says it. He says, Kurt, I really want to see you advance. And I can think of no one else to lead a new branch but you. Your salary for such would be well compensated. In fact, I suspect you'll double your current pay. Upon hearing that, you're elated. It's just what you worked hard for. And just as you get ready to say thank you, your boss interrupts you and says, and one more thing. I need you to change your budget numbers on that last project so that you're not so far under budget. With a rather dumbfounded look upon your face, you say, what? The boss says, yeah, we... We really don't expect our new partner not to gain from these times we go under budget. And you say, well, what exactly does that mean? He said, well, it's, it's how we pad our pockets. It's how we double our salary. In both of these particular scenarios, whether you're the father who has the daughter asking him questions about the friend, or now the successful employee who's been asked to change the budget numbers, you've found yourself in a potentially compromising position. As you find yourself in that kind of position in either scenario or another scenario in real life, you sometimes you think, well, only if there is something available to offer me some insight to make the right decision, for something to help me to know what to say and what to do. And thankfully, there is. And today, it's written in Leviticus 18. I call it the Christian standard of living. Today we look in Leviticus 18 and find only five verses, but it's five verses that we can apply to our lives if we find ourselves potentially in a compromising position. It's straightforward, it's short, it's concise, it's succinct, it's brief, but let's stand this morning and hear the word in Leviticus chapter 18. Again, five verses, very concise, but straight to the point. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Father, Lord, we come before you today, Lord, knowing sometimes life does get difficult. Sometimes we are put in a position where we're asked to compromise our beliefs and our faith. Lord, today I pray that the message we're about to hear today 
to be what you want us to know and what you want us to practice in real life scenarios when life becomes gets difficult. And we were asked to sometimes be compromising our faith. Lord, we pray that we stand firm in our faith and our belief and that truly we make the right decision. So, Lord, we just ask that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide and direct our time together this morning. Let us learn from this text, Lord, and begin to apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you're being seated, I mean, when I maybe mentioned Leviticus this morning, you may have had the reaction a lot of people do when you hear about the book of Leviticus. Because people look upon Leviticus and they say, well, oh, man, that's, that's boring, it's regulatory, and it is. I mean, when you look at Leviticus, begin to read all the book of Leviticus, it can be at times boring and certainly regulatory. But because of that, a lot of times it's neglected in modern day. Because it does outline certain rules and regulations and specifics related to Levitical priestly duties. The first 17 chapters are just completely full of specific duties for the Levites and the priests. But the book of Leviticus is also useful for us today in the world we're living in. And why is it still useful? Because it also provides for us then, as Christians, as believers, it provides for us a handbook or a guidebook of holy living. And we need such a thing because in a rapidly changing world, the world changes so much today, we need a guidebook to be enforced that returns us to the holy living that honors God. So therefore, this morning, we consider a very brief Old Testament text that will lead us into some standards of living that will greatly contradict the world's standards. The world seems to dictate in every behavior we should have, but it never coincides with the Word of God. So when we're put into a compromising position, like the scenarios we had just a moment ago, now we know we can stand upon the Word of God, exercise obedience, and bring glory to God with our actions and words. So for today, then, there's two sermon points we're going to have that will outline the pattern we go for today to help us understand how we can overcome any of these scenarios we have in life where we're asked to compromise our faith and our belief. And the two points are this. Number one, that as Christians, we should completely detest the standard of this world. And secondly, we'll expand upon how Christians should carefully obey the standard of his word. Both of these we expand upon was considered the first. The first again being the Christians should completely detest the standard of this world. I don't know a great word to describe the standards of this world, but there's one that came to my mind this week. I don't use it much in preparation for sermons. I don't know if I've ever said it in a sermon before, but the standards of this world are whack. They are. They're off base. I mean, the world sets standards that is complete contradiction to the Word. The scenarios that we started with, I could have had many more scenarios, but the two scenarios we started with are seemingly fictitious. But are they really fictitious? Because when you really begin to analyze life and the situations that sometimes we get in, whether it's ourselves or even our children, it seems that Christians in modern day are subjects to many standards of the world that truly puts us in such a compromising position. And when we get in those situations, sometimes we're left just pondering. 
pondering such thoughts like, what the law does allow now for same sex to be together, and are are we just too old-fashioned? I mean, if there's new ideas and people are open to these ideas, and now the government's even regulated these things to be true and, and to be considered, should I reconsider all this? I mean, is this actually as useful as it used to be? Because we get a dilemma. When the world begins to dictate certain things to us, we get a dilemma in our lives thinking, am I too old-fashioned? Do I need to reconsider some things and advance forward in life? And we get into such a dilemma, and it's likely then that if you've not truly been in one of those situations and had that thought to be pondered, or maybe in a situation that you personally have been in, then it may be that your children are, have been in it or will be going through it or going through it now. And they begin to feel the pressure to conform. And when they get the pressure to conform, they potentially could compromise the Word of God. And that's when we need to know that the Word of God never compromises. And Christians must follow the Word of God even when it truly contradicts the word of man, the law of man. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the way of the world. But the way of the world just has a way of dictating certain things. Like, for example, some of you may well remember seven years ago when the Supreme Court of the United States changed the expectation or the standard of marriage. More specifically, on June 26th of 2015, hard to believe it's been seven years now, the ruling was such as such. The Supreme Court decided this. The 14th Amendment requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex and recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex. That was the new law passed down across our country. Hard to believe it was seven years now we would live with that. But seven years ago in June, shortly after that in that particular summer, a situation arose in Rowan County, Kentucky. The, lot, the county clerk, her name was Kim Davis, was petitioned by a same-sex couple for a marriage license. But Kim Davis, as the county clerk, would not issue the marriage license to the couple. Now, as a county clerk, issuing marriage license is just something that she just did every day. But she had never done it to the same sex. Miss Davis did not agree with the Supreme Court and stated such. I never imagined a day like this would come where I would be asked to violate the central teaching of Scripture and of Jesus himself regarding marriage, to issue a marriage license which conflicts God's definition of marriage with my name affixed to the certificate would violate my conscience. It is a heaven or hell decision. For me, it is a decision of obedience. Now question, was Kim Davis then the Rowan County clerk for Kentucky, put into a compromising position? Absolutely she was. A follow-up. Did she do the right thing? 
I mean, couldn't she just have resigned her position as county clerk? Now I'll leave that for you to decide. But for her, it was a matter of her faith and her beliefs. Notice the last portion of Kim's statement. Where she says, it is a decision of obedience. Obedience being the key word. I mean, to obey means to really to adhere or to abide or to comply with the command or to submit and carry out. Which we need to understand what obedience is and what obey means because that is exactly what God expects of his followers, of his children, of believers. That's exactly what he expects. He expects obedience. Now Saul, the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, had to learn this the hard way. In 1 Samuel 15, the students will know this because we've been reviewing it in Sunday school. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, who's the prophet, gives Saul, the first king of Israel, very specific instructions. Samuel received instructions from God. Samuel goes to Saul says, this is what the Lord says. 1 Samuel 15, verse 2 and 3. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now comes a very specific instruction. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Any way you slice it, that's a command that leaves very little doubt about what God expects. However, Saul spares the king of the Amalekites, his name's Agag, and the best of the oxen and the sheep and whatever. 1 Samuel 15, 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now, another question. Is that obedience to the command given to Saul from the Lord via the prophet Samuel? Is that obedience to the command? No. Now, a little later, Samuel confronts Saul. Saul tells Samuel that he has, he has performed the commandment from the Lord in 1 Samuel 15, 13. But Samuel, with a little bit of humor and that also serious at the same time, in verse 14 of that chapter, says, What then, if you, if you perform the command, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Essentially, Saul has not obeyed. There is no such thing as partial obedience. Obedience is all or nothing. So as Saul then blames the sparing of the best on the need to offer sacrifice to the Lord, Samuel then informs him in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as inequity and idolatry. Because of Saul's disobedience, which was his rejection of the word of God, he didn't perform the command as given, he has lost favor with God and rejected then as the king of Israel. The whole point of all that, using that as an example, is that God expects obedience. That's what he expects of every one of his children. 
Every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ, he expects obedience. That is the standard. That is the expectation that he has of his followers. Okay, then, but if we choose to obey, if we know that is the expectation, that is the standard, if we choose to obey the word and the commands of God, where does obedience leave us Christians in the world today? Where does it leave us? Because if you begin to obey the word of God, contradicting the way of the world, you're going to be labeled as intolerant, narrow-minded, maybe even remarkably labeled as egotistical, and definitely on the outside as far as the world is concerned. But yet we got to know that God honors obedience. In fact, many pastors and scholars suggest that obedience to God's laws produces in his people happy and fulfilled lives. Which is true because disobedience typically results in unhappiness and certainly unfulfilled lives, especially of believers. But also observe that obedience, if you choose to obey the word of God, not the world, if you choose to be obedient to God's laws, it will often have an adverse effect on the way the world will react to you. Obedience, when we're obedient to the Word of God, truly practicing our faith and our beliefs, it can result in you receiving ridicule and mocking and exclusion. A good friend of mine named Les had been one of the people responsible for the company he worked for. He was the man responsible. Anytime they had a sales meeting, he was the one who had to make the arrangements for the sales gathering. And, and he went to every extreme. I mean, he bought all the alcohol, purchased all that, got it together. He would arrange the entertainment, whatever it was going to be. He had already set for the sales meeting. But when the big group came in, it was Les, who was in charge of getting all that together. So it was, seemed to be a great big party and a happy sales meeting. But it came to an abrupt change when Les one day had a visit from the pastor Van Avenue Baptist Church. The pastor happened to be patrolling through Newburgh, stopped at Les's house, and Les told me later, he said when he saw the pastor coming, he hid. He hid. He said he got behind the door and he hid from him, but the pastor wouldn't give it because he kept knocking on the door. Actually, he told me later there was a mirror when he could look through the mirror, <laughs> look through the window, see the mirror, and the pastor knew Les was standing there the whole time. So he just kept knocking on the door. So he wouldn't go away. So Les finally you know, caved in, opened the door, and when the pastor walked in, he began to lead Les through the gospel. Before the pastor left that day, Les accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So the following week, he went back to work. And people were talking about Les, about this new part, this new sales meeting. He's coming up, Les. We need you to be the man, just like you were before. And Les says, no, I, I can no longer do that. And they said, what do you mean? You, know, I mean you, you always take care of these things for us, Les. Les says, you don't understand. I, I got saved on Sunday, and now I, I'm a man of God, and I, I have nothing to do with any of it anymore. But as a result of that happening in Les's life, he got excluded from every activity in the sales group. I mean, he no longer was the go-to man. He refused to do it. 
but he had ridicule and mocking because of his faith, because he practiced it and wouldn't be no longer the man in charge of arranging all the alcohol and the special entertainment for these parties and for the sales meetings, he got excluded. He was an outcast. And that's what we have to expect. When we go against the world, we have to expect exclusion and ridicule and mocking because that's a reaction when we choose to obey the Word of God. And ultimately, we must be okay with that because our reward for obedience is in the next life. It is not in this life. We do not seek earthly treasures. We seek heavenly, as written in Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, to store up for ourselves treasures of heaven, not treasures on earth. And then while that may be some motivation for us to detest the world's standards and obey the word of God, we should also recognize, as I mentioned earlier, that's just an expectation of us. I mean, our word a little differently, we should leave. When we become a believer, we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we have got to leave the old world, the old life behind. As Paul told the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the new, the deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what Paul told the Ephesian believers that need to do. Put off the old, put on the new. But we can take that and apply that as such. The followers, us, Christians, believers, we should get away from the old life, yes. And additionally, followers should get away from the modern-day current life. That's the essence, really, of verse 3 of the text today. Notice how Moses is receiving the command, and he, and he tells the Israelites, he tells the Hebrews, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. That's the old, that's what it used to be, that's the old thing, put that off. And he says, you shall not do also as they do in the land of Canaan, which I am bringing you. That's the modern day. They're going to come to the land of Canaan. They're going to be introduced to new different things in Canaan. Don't do as they do in Canaan, but also don't do what they used to do in Egypt. I mean, the verse clearly commands to, for them to avoid the sinful life that was lived out in the land of Egypt, which was idolatry, lust, power, pride, immorality, all the things the world still offers today. To get away from all that, but also remember that you must not continue to practice things to be offered in the new life, in the new world. Because even though we are of the world, even though we're in the world, we are not of the world. Even though we are in the world, we're not of the world. Basically, it's saying this, that there are going to be things in the past that you should avoid. Then it's likely, if that's true, there's going to be things in the new life when you accept Christ that you continue to avoid. Or say in a different way is this. There are things that may appear good as you live in the world today, but in the standard of God, it just is not offered for us to do. It is not good for us to do. It may be legal. It may be acceptable. But it's just not what we should do because it violates the word of God. And will then put you in a compromising position like gambling or the same-sex marriage and things of that nature. It's all legal, 
but it's just not according to what we should do from the Word of God. It contradicts his teachings. So Christians should avoid, they should detest the standard of the world. That was the first point. The second, remember, was this. That Christians should carefully obey the standard of his word. Verses 4 and 5 seems pretty clear. Verse 4. You shall follow. You shall follow. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes. In the emphasis of the Lord at the end, I am the Lord your God. Verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Again at the end, I am the Lord. Notice how verse 4 and 5 is written like there should be little, if any doubt, upon the role of the expectation of the believer. It means Christians were commanded by the Lord to perform the statutes and the rules of God to keep the ordinances. Whatever it may be, keep the ordinances. Or if it's confusing, verse 4 and 5 is maybe better written or simply worded by Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase. He said, don't live like the people of Egypt where you used to live. And don't live like the people that came and where I'm bringing you. Don't do what they do. Obey my laws and live by my decree. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws. Keep my decrees and laws. Seems pretty straightforward. Seems pretty simple enough. But as we see the simplicity of it, Maybe we need to ask, well, what laws and decrees are you talking about? Because in the Old Testament, the one you're referring to here, I thought all the Old Testament laws was always there for the Hebrews. And yes, the Old Testament laws were written for the Hebrews. And as you look through them all, some of them seem really, really odd and strange. For example, Exodus 23:19, You shall not boil a young goat in this mother's milk. Anybody done that? Who has goats? If you do, don't boil the goat in his mother's milk. Or how about Deuteronomy 22.11? This is one you violated. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. I probably got polyester and cotton on it right now. So those commands written many years ago may seem really odd to us. And maybe were written specifically for the Hebrews to follow. But here's the thing: as we, as it seems odd to see some of these and to hear some of it, here's the thing we got to know: that God meant for all those commands to be followed by His people. It wasn't up for debate. It wasn't for man to decide, okay, I'll follow this one, but not that one. I mean, he expected complete obedience to all of His commands. I mean, it may seem odd to us. And it may be written for the Hebrews, but God expected complete obedience to all of his commands. And by the way, while we're on the topic of it, of the Old Testament law, remember that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, as written in Matthew 5.17. So all that means then is that a standard of living, although it may not be that you have to wear all cotton or all wool or whatever, because that's the Old Testament and it's not applicable to us, what still is is a standard of living, a standard of living for Christians still exists today. Now, I'm not saying you got to follow everything in the Old Testament because there'll be Judaism. 
But there is a standard. There is an expectation for us to follow for being Christians and believers in the world we're living today. Now, if you take the opportunity, as I did a little bit last week, to enter into Google and type in rules for Christian living, you're going to find all kinds of comments, books, directions, and thoughts. I mean, Chris Greer, I found, I don't even know who he is. He writes a 312-page book called 12 Rules for Christian Life. Who wants to read 312 pages of 12 Rules for Christian Life? Now, in case you don't want to, there's another one offered by Jeannie Finley, who is much less complicated. She offers three simple rules for Christian living. So you can find all sorts of things when you begin to type in rules for Christian living. Even Billy Graham offers some advice on a way to live a productive and Christian life. He offers things like this. Ten rules. Read your Bible daily. Learn the secret of prayer. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Attend church regularly. Be a witness continually. And of course, five or six others. But you can find all kinds of things when you Google how to live as a Christian. But when it comes to a standard on how to live as a Christian, many people just simply use the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. And they say, that's my standard. That's what I'm going to try to practice. In order to convey, to be a positive witness to the world today, I'm going to try to follow Ten Commandments. But if that's the standard by which we choose to live, how well do we follow them? Or does that matter how well do we know them? Al Moeller is president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. A few years ago, he did some research and it posted on the seminary's website, a little blog. He wrote an article featuring the biblical illiteracy that seems to exist today. It's a very insightful article that has a lot of facts and I'm sure you'll find amazing. Facts like this. Most Christians can only name two of the gospel. There's four. No more can they name than two or three disciples. There's 12. But he also found that when people say they want their standard living as Christians to be the Ten Commandments, he also found this. That 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. So if that's our gauge, if that's what we're saying is our gauge to, stand, to have our standard of Christian living, how well do we follow them? How well do we know them? How can we follow something we do not know? If you can't name something, how can you follow something? So no wonder then, Many people today are following to follow the world standards. I mean, it's, we, we seem to know what the world wants. It's just easier to follow because we know it. We hear about it all the time. And because we know it, we seem to fall to it and follow. But we need to also understand that if we truly want to be believers, if we truly want to make sure we're living a great Christian life, we got to know the Word of God. And we got to then follow the Word of God. If we want to follow the Word of God, we got to know the Word of God. See, it all comes back full circle then to the fact that we must know the Word of God. We got to believe completely it is sufficient for our lives. It is infallible, it is inerrant. And it is, by the way, the absolute truth. Even in modern day, 
when a world tells you there is no such thing as truth. The absolute truth still exists. It is the Word of God. Our last point is that Christians should carefully obey the standard of His Word. But we have to know the Word. I mean, bottom line is this. We face a great challenge today. We are not of this world, but we live in this world. And we are God's people. But we are foreigners then in the troubled world. God's standards of behavior is eroding before our eyes. You see it, I see it. But because we live in the world and are subject to this, we can so easily fall, gar- fall to this garbage. But we've got to stand strong, we've got to stand faithful, and we've got to know the Word of God. And we've got to know that there's this. There's only one standard in life. There's only one standard for all of us in life. As Christians and believers, there's only one standard, and it is the Word. And perhaps we could sum up the Word, the Ten Commandments in general, by exercising what's written in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If all we can ever do is follow these two commands and know these two commands, then we're on our way to being obedient to his word and living the right Christian life. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today as it points us to truth we need to hear. Lord, we do know that there are many times in life that we will be in a compromising position, that the world will try to dictate what way we should react. But Lord, we know, especially when we know it contradicts the word, that we follow your word, not the world. So Lord, today, allow us then to put this into practice, to follow your word, especially when it contradicts the world. Well, we just love you. We want to make sure we're good examples, everybody who's watching us. So allow us today, Lord, to go into the world and to follow your word and exercise it, to be faithful, to be strong. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.